Um, but, I, but I had a question for you to start. What do you think about when you think of the word uh, groan, groaning? Groaning. If you're anything like me, you're, you're audible. So when you hear the word groaning, you hear this. Oh. I guarantee you that's the first time in history that's ever happened at Calvary Chapel Almani, and it'll probably be the last time in history, and, and I'll probably hear it from Pastor Manny. But I'm a little weird. I'm a little different. I'm, I'm a visual, I'm audible, and I like to do things like that. But the Webster's Dictionary defines it as to breathe with a deep murmuring sound, to, to utter a mournful voice as in pain or sorrow, to sigh, to be oppressed or afflicted, or to complain of oppression, to utter a, a deep moan indicative of pain, grief, or annoyance, to make a prolonged stress, dull cry expressive of agony or pain or disapproval, to make a loud, harsh, creaking sound as of a tree bending in the wind. That's the Webster's Dictionary of the word groan or groaning. And it's interesting, I, I was reading about a study that was done that showed that the average person groans or sighs 12 times an hour, but even more so uh, during times of, of stress or anxiety. And I wonder, are you guys groaners? Uh, I tend to groan a lot. The first sign of a headache, I'm groaning um, in traffic. Sad to admit it, but I, but I groan, right? I got a, an old creaky back now, so I find myself groaning when I get up. Uh, when I sit down, uh, come to think of it, I, I'm groaning whatever position I'm in now, okay? That's just what old age does to you, huh? And, and, and then that's what life does to you. It, it causes you to, to groan. In short, groaning uh, has got a bad rap. Um, we usually associate it with something negative because it usually is, right? It, it carries an undesirable connotation or, or a meaning today. But today I want to talk to you about the good groaning. I, I pray that we would be good groaners. That's the title of today's study is Good Groanings. Uh, it kind of sounds like an oxymoron. It is, right? What do you mean good groanings? Those two words, they, they're, they're contradictory. Um, but if you, if you will, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For whatever reason you don't have a Bible, it's, it's a good idea to follow along, uh, just in case you know, we're telling you up here something that's not true and, and you can refute it, you can, you can read it on your own, okay? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be spending some time in uh, verses 16 through 18 all the way to verse 8 of chapter 5. And as you're turning there, just to give you a quick synopsis, because we don't have a lot of time, the church in Corinth um, had many, many problems, right? It's actually been uh, uh, known as, as uh, a California church. I should say a lot about the state here in California. So Paul, the apostle, had to do some correcting in his first letter. That's 1 Corinthians. And so he sent a, a trusted brother in the, in the Lord, Titus, to deliver this letter of correction and because he loved them, because he cared about them, because he actually wasn't just one of those, you know, uh, shoving leaders. He was a loving leader, like our pastor likes to say. He was pacing back and forth, anticipating what kind of reaction the uh, church in Corinth would have. How would they take the spanking that he so lovingly had given them in the first letter? Um, so finally, Titus, uh, he, he reported it's all good. They received and repented. Uh, you'll read, as you read through 2 Corinthians, that in chapter 7, verse 8 through 9, Paul writes to him, for even if it made you 
sorry with my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. That's probably one of the hardest things that you have to do uh, as a servant of the Lord. If you've been entrusted with that, which is to have to sit down and, and, and talk to someone, have to, to, to speak truth into someone. Hopefully, it's someone that, that, that does it in a loving way, in, in a careful way, and in a biblical way. But, but the, the response of the Corinthian church was good. They, they said, look, we, we understand what you're saying. You're right. We need to, we need to repent. Um, and so 2 Corinthians, uh, because of that, is a letter in response to uh, their first response. It, it's a very personal letter. Um, it's, it's a letter where I think Paul has joy that they submitted to his admonitions, his loving admonitions. Um, to me, I think, you know, what it says in, in the, the third epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 4, rang true with Paul when John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Any of us that are fathers here, our mothers here, we know that to be true. Huh? There's nothing that we want than to see our children walk in truth. Uh, for a pastor like, like Paul, I believe he had the heart of a pastor or a John, that blessed him. That blessed him uh, when the Corinthian church received that admonition that he had given them. And so because Paul had the confidence that the church in Corinth um, was now walking in that truth, the second letter, which is what we're in right now, 2 Corinthians, was a very personal letter. Paul opened up his, his, his chest and, and, and showed them his heart. Um, and for that, we're blessed because we get to glean from, uh, from this letter. And more importantly, we get to glean from God's heart because all scripture is inspired by God, okay? So let me start reading. We're going to read verses 16 through 18 and then come back and, and talk about it. But it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, for even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, they're eternal. And so Paul the Apostle is telling them here in verse 16, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. There's something about this life, this, this world, this sinful, frail nature of ours that makes us want to quit when things get hard. I remember being young and feeling um, like nothing can penetrate me. I don't know if you guys can relate to that. I felt like I was indestructible, and sadly, that's probably when I was doing the most destructive things because of that, because I felt so indestructible. It's only by God's grace. It's only through his mercy that I'm here. Trust me. And I would venture to say that's probably the same for a lot of you before Christ. The things that you did that you didn't think about, that you felt could never hurt you, actually, man, they, they, they could have they killed you. But this is the opposite. This is when you're going through it. This is when you're going through these things in life that, that we're not to lose heart. He says, therefore, because he's, he's pointing back to, to, to chapter 4. In, in chapter 4, again, he says that word, therefore, don't lose heart. 
When you think about the New Testament church throughout her history, all the persecution, the, the pain that she endured, uh, you wonder how, how she made it through, huh? If you know anything about church history, man, you know that the church has been persecuted throughout history. Persecuted from the Romans to the Babylonians, to you name it. To this day, the church is being persecuted, and yet the church did. It, it made it. It didn't lose heart. Why? Well, number one, I think it's because God was carrying her. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, against her. But second, I think it probably has to do with the fact that the church, because they were being persecuted, um, they kept their eyes on Jesus. They, they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. What, what is Paul saying here when he says we do not lose heart? It's the second time again that he's, that he's mentioning this. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says the same thing. I think, you know, He's saying, don't give up. That's what the New Living Translation translates it like. Some might say, don't rank out. Don't, don't quit. Suffering has a way of making people do that. It has a way of making us do that. I always remember as, as Jesus was, was teaching the multitude, and he said something that was, that was difficult in their eyes. It was troubling. It was something that they felt could cause suffering. He was seeing the, the, the multitude leave his, his presence. I even remember that, uh, that, that, uh, that verse because, you know, ironically, it is John 666. That's a good way of remembering a verse, huh? When the multitude was leaving Jesus, John 666. But then he turned to his disciples in John 667, and he asked that, that question straight up. Do you also want to leave? Are you also losing heart? And I love Peter's response. Peter has a bad rap. He's known as impetuous Peter, huh? It, which means impulsive. It means reckless. It, it means spontaneous. A lot of us, I'm guilty of that sometimes. That's the whole sigh uh, that I'm going to hear about later, the whole uh, sound effect, right? But Peter's response was awesome in John 6, verse 60, 68. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that should be our response too as his church. That's why the church survived throughout the years of persecution because that was their response. Where else can we go? No matter how low life gets, leaving Jesus is only downhill from there, guys. Only downhill. And so... Question, what is the number one thing you guys think people are afraid of? When you think of fear, when you think of something that makes them tremble, what do you guys think that they're afraid of? Well, I mean, if you go on the internet and you ask that question, the number one answer is public speaking. How many of you guys are afraid of public speaking? You're not? Yeah. Second is, is uh, heights. How many of you guys are afraid of heights? <laughs> Quite a few of you. Snakes, spiders, right? Uh, liars, they're liars. Because death, I think, is the one thing that most of us are afraid of. I think if you really cut down, if you just really want to ask someone to be honest, honest, and you pose that question, they might not admit to it because most of the people that you ask, are you afraid to die? They put on this, this, this brave face. They, 
especially us men, huh? We, we stick out our chest. We're like, no, nah, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. Again, liars. Well, maybe if you're a Christian, but if you're not, I, I guarantee you you're afraid to die because you don't know what's going to happen after that. You don't know if that what you've been told, that you just don't go six feet under, that you just don't close your eyes and never wake up again, but that there's eternity in two sides of it. One is in heaven and one is in hell. Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. Many groan. Many groan at the thought of death, decay, sickness. Someone said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And it's, I kind of understand that, you know, because death, you know, it, it's, it's got a grip on a lot of us. You know, we're going to be observing uh, the anniversary of 9-11. How many of you guys to this day can remember, if you're over 35 at least, most of you guys can remember where you were the morning of September 11th? It's never going to leave our, our minds, huh? Never. And so right after that, guess what happened? Guess what happened to the churches? I wasn't, I wasn't walking with the Lord back then. I was, I was a wretched pagan back then. But did it, it sobered me up for a week, and then I went back to what I knew to do. But I hear reports from those in the church that the church was packed. How many of you guys were walking with the Lord during 9-11? How many of you guys were in fellowship at a church when it happened? That's what I hear, that, that right after 9-11, the churches were packed to the brim. I mean, you couldn't find a seat to sit in. People were standing in the aisles. People were sitting on the floor. Why? Because the thought of death, it, it, it actually made sense to them. I, I really trip out on the fact that, and I really do believe that it's the devil who's at play with this virus because... I was thinking, Lord, you're going to do a work, and he still can, and we got to continue to pray that he would. But I'm so surprised that, that during the time that we're living in, that the churches aren't crowded, that the churches aren't overfilling, that, that their seats still open. Because if, if any time the thought of death shall come, there's no time like the time, the season that we're living in. 9-11, the coronavirus, earthquakes, fires. You name it. Someone said, death may be the king of terrors, but Jesus is the king of kings. And we need to know that. We need to proclaim that as a church. So Christians, what does it mean that though the outward is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day? Well, what it means is that we as humans are trichotomies. It's a fancy word for uh, three parts, right? We're three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The body, obviously we see it, we touch it. We see it in the mirror every single day, yet it dies. But the soul, the spirit, we don't. And yet that's eternal. When I was working at a job, I met a, an old-time uh, football player, his name is Dick Bass. Some of you guys are, or most of you guys are probably too young to know who Dick Bass is. But Dick Bass used to play uh, for the Rams in the 60s. And the first thing I noticed was how beat up he was. How messed up he was. His knuckles, his elbows, his knees, his back were thrashed. They were thrashed. His football career, while lucrative, had messed 
his body up. Well, that's the body. It's a, it's a shaky shack. It gives out in time. Yesterday, someone from the men's uh, fellowship pointed uh, to a story, and in that story, someone said, everything has an expiration date. And it's so true, huh? Think about all the things that Paul endured. If you know anything about Paul, the apostle's history, you know that he endured a lot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us a list. He says five times, 39 stripes, lashes, the Jews, my people, gave me. He said three times I was beaten with rods. He says I had stones thrown at me. Three times I was shipwrecked, holding onto a plank. I spent life in journeys, at dangers at sea, at dangers of man, at dangers even from my own people, even from the church. He says, I was weary, I had toil, I had sleeplessness, I was hungry, I was thirsty. Talk about forced fasting, huh? I was cold, not because he forgot his jacket at home, but because he was naked. He says, besides that, I had all these concerns for the church. You think Paul's body felt repercussions? You think he felt it? You think seeing Paul towards the end of his life, he didn't walk slow? He didn't have a, 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 his back crooked? He didn't, he didn't feel it? I think he did. I think he did. In response to Paul's accusers, in Galatians 6.17, he makes our point. He says in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And so you see, guys, as our, as our bodies are perishing, as we're going through it, as we're going through the sickness, as we're going through these pandemics, as we're going through life, and our tent is being destroyed, it's actually the mark of Jesus Christ. Because we could be used as witnesses. We could be used as examples. Instead of running around in fear, instead of running around complaining or negatively groaning, we should be good groaners, guys. I, I want to point to the fact that the apostles were not superhuman. I think sometimes we think they are. They were human just like us. They weren't Avengers, Right? You bet Paul felt it. You bet that he was saying this and when he was talking about his tent, he was thinking about his own tent. Yet he also felt the strength and he had the hope of God. Paul here is anticipating, maybe even responding to a question that someone posed to him. Paul, after all that you've been through, how is it that you cannot lose heart? Or how is it that you have a heart? How is it that you don't lose heart? How is it that you don't give up? Quit, fold that tent and go home. I'm curious that if you've ever had that question posed at you. Because I've talked to people who have been asked this very question. They've gone through immense sufferings, but they're wiser for it. They're more mature because of it. Because they kept their faith in Jesus, they became super spreaders. I know that's not a popular word nowadays, but I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about super spreaders of the gospel, super spreaders of the faith. Because their marks, because their sufferings, because their torn tents were used as examples 
as they kept their faith, as they kept looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. The only way the inside, the spirit is being damaged with the outside body as we go through this life is because through it all, we're not keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're not. We're keeping our eyes on our body. We're keeping our eyes on the circumstance. We're keeping our eyes on the virus. We're keeping our eyes on this world. We've got to be good growners, guys. I love that Paul wrote day by day in verse 16. Because it's a reminder that God is with us every day. He doesn't wander off. You know, things don't happen to us when his head is turned around. He's sovereign. He's on the throne. If you belong to him, if you're his daughter, if you're his son, nothing that happens to you happens outside of his notice. He knows. He has a purpose for it. He's not the author of it. But you better believe that there's something good that he wants to do through it. I think it's also a reminder that we need to seek him daily, day by day. Jesus taught us that, huh, in the model prayer. In, in Luke eleven three, give us day by day our daily bread. Paul, in verses 17 through 18, goes on to then give us a comparison of a lifetime versus an eternity. If you just say that word lifetime, man, it sounds long, huh? Lifetime. What is a lifetime? Some of you guys are old enough, again, to remember 9-11 very, very good. Does it seem like it's been 20 years to you? We're in September already. That means there's only, I'm trying to do math in my head real quick, three months left to the year. That's good. That's crazy. How fast did the time just go by? How fast have these past 10 years, five years gone by? I was telling Jimmy and Tina, I feel like that old man now that you know, tells those old man stories, but I said, man, as the older you get, the faster it goes, the faster time goes. It says in verses 17 through 18, for our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are only temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Pastor Manny, I had to ask him today because I forgot to my shame. He likes to use a quote that says, if we get our eyes, our focus on the world, we're going to be distressed. If we focus on ourselves, we're going to be depressed. But if we focus and we place our eyes on Jesus, we're going to be blessed. And that's so true. If we think about the possible afflictions of a lifetime, I don't know how long we're going to get to live, 50, 60 years. Uh, people are living longer now, right, because of medicine, maybe 80, 90 years. Uh, my wife and I have a neighbor. She's 106. She's still mowing the lawn. No, I'm just kidding. She's not mowing the lawn. <laughs> but, but she's doing good. You know, she's doing good. That's amazing. But a uh, hundred years is nothing. A hundred years is, is but a moment. James 4.14 tells us, well, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then poof, vanishes away. It's true. So then how do we not lose heart? 
looking at reality. I think the only thing is we have that twisted. We look at the reality which we can't see. We don't look at the reality that we don't see. And that's a greater reality. Notice the word Paul, the words Paul uses here. He says, light affliction. He's using a play on words here. Light affliction. With that which you think is heavy and affliction, he uses the word light. Really, Paul? A light affliction? Oh, never mind. I read your testimony. You have the right to say that. But you, you, you counter that word with the weight of glory. So now you have something light. Now you have something heavy. And which is heavy, he calls glory. If we compare glory, if we compare and we submit to the authority of the Bible and we believe the word of God and we believe what we read, that in heaven there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin, that we're going to be with God, that we're going to be with those loved ones that put their trust in Christ, that there's no longer going to be death, that we no longer have to worry about this wretched body, this wretched sinful nature that we all have, even as Christians. then that, that, that affliction does turn light. If we look at the reality of the fact that we might live 50, 60, 70, 80, if we're blessed like my neighbor 100 years, but compared to eternity, that's nothing. Then the affliction, though hard, because of the weight of glory, will seem light. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us. Keep your focus. Look what he uses. He uses what just for a moment. And then he couples that with what? The eternal. For a short time. Forever. It's hard, guys, I know. It's hard not to look at the things seen. Because they're there, they're right in front of us. We feel them. It's hard not to, you know, look at the things that we deal with and instead look at the things unseen. But I really do believe that as Christians, sometimes we're looking at life upside down. We should be having a, more of a heavenly perspective. And, and we should believe that, that we're in training mode here. And that whatever it is that we're going through, that God has a purpose until he takes us home. Concentrating more on the temporary, the short time, instead of the eternal, the forever is upside down. I mean, I get it. The things seen is the reality, and, and life can be hard, and the things unseen is the promises, and sometimes they just seem so far off. But God has a good track record. We would do well to trust him. The Holy Spirit, and we're going to read, is our helper, and in this we have the Holy Spirit to give us faith during those unseen times to be able to overcome that which we can't overcome by ourselves. That which is the weight. Hebrews eleven six tells us, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You mean that I can't please God by coming to church every Sunday, coming to church on a midweek? That's pretty good. I mean, only the crazies go to church on Thursday, right? You mean if I give you know, a little portion of my check. You mean if I wear, you know, the T-shirt and I, and, I, and, I, and I have the bumper sticker on my car, that that's not going to please God? No. 
The only way, according to 11.6, that we can please God is by having faith. Do you have faith? God is encouraging us through Paul, through the Corinthian circumstance, in our day-to-day, in our pandemic season that we're living in, in our divided world that we're living in, 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 the, in the painting of the floods and the earthquakes and the fires and all these different things that we're dealing with. God is speaking to us today. Don't lose heart. The question is, did you ever have heart to begin with? Because you cannot lose a heart that you never had. And that's a question you have to ask yourself. In John 15, Jesus reminds us, huh, to abide in him. Abide, that means hold on. It doesn't mean to go out and do all these things. It means to hold on with all you have. We're told to rest in God. Resting isn't flapping your arms and doing all the things. It's just sitting. It's resting in who God is. He says, abide in me and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's John 15, 4. Have faith. That's what Paul is trying to teach us. Hold on. Later in chapter 5, he reminds us, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In Romans 8, Paul, I don't have time to go there, but he writes something very similar to what we're studying here. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us one day. That's a reflection that Paul is making. He says in verse 34, who is he who condemns? Is it, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who, even as at the right, who, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. He's asking a rhetorical question. Who could condemn us? How could we be defeated if God is on our sides? We are more than conquerors, right, in Christ. And that's what he says in verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the right conclusion. As we consider the suffering of this world, it's okay to reflect. It's okay to ask questions, but it's, it's, it's very, very important that we come up with the right conclusion. Ask Christians, and you need to ask yourself that question. Am I a Christian? Have I placed my faith in Christ? Do I believe that he is God in the flesh, that he came to take my place, that he died the death that I deserve to die, that he rose on the third day showing the power of God, and if I place my faith in that, and I believe it with all my heart, that I'm saved, that I'm good, that I'm a Christian, that's what it means. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 Uh, Paul wrote, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So this life might be difficult sometimes, but God, it's also good. God also wants to bless you. God has has things prepared for you. Even in this life, he wants to use you. We have to hold on. We, We cannot lose heart. We have to be good groaners. Yesterday we were studying 1 John, and in 1 John chapter 2 we read in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And he says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And this is the promise, it says in verse 25, that he has promised us eternal life. 
C.S. Lewis once wrote, aim at heaven and you will get an earth thrown in. But caution, aim at earth and you will get neither. And so now let's turn to chapter 5, which is where the, the groaning title part is going to come. Uh, it says in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 4 so you could read together with me. It says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that morta mortality may be swallowed up by life. So verse 1, for we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I thought it was interesting, guys, that Paul wrote if. If our earthly house is destroyed. I was looking for italics. If you see something in the Bible that's, that's italic, that means that the, the, the translators put that in there so that it would make more sense to us, but it wasn't there. So I looked up the Greek word, and to my surprise, there it was. It's the Greek word, ian, which means if or in case. And so I thought, well, I could be wrong, but maybe he's referring to the rapture. But most commentary says more than likely it's it's uncertainty regarding the time when our tents are going to be destroyed. But not concerning the fact that they're going to be destroyed. What's that saying that we like to say that, that you can't run away from who? The IRS and death, right? Those are the two things you can't run away from. And so unless we're raptured, and there's going to be a portion of the church that's taken, we're going to have to go through a demolition project, guys. We're going to have to go through it. My wife and I, we always go eat at this one spot, always go eat at this one spot. It's our habit in Rosemead, California, right there on Rosemead Boulevard. You guys didn't get that joke. <laughs> Anyways, we go by this house that's been in a state of destruction for years. And I was telling my wife, man, that house has been there for years. And it's demolished this dilapidated. It's fallen apart. It's in shambles. On this earth, we might have to face that, guys. I think of Job. I don't want to think of Job too much, but I think of Job. And he had to face something like that. But unlike that house that's been like that for years, we won't have to be like that forever. One day we're going to get a new house. One day we're going to get a new body that's not susceptible to sin, that's not susceptible to viruses or to diseases. Paul says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter. Only quality workmanship, man. He builds mansions, not shacks. John 14, uh, 2 to 3 says, In my Father's houses are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may also be. I was 
you know, Pastor Manny shows this house a lot, but it, it stuck with me the first time I see it. That house had survived a hurricane. Do you think that house was made well? And so what is good growing? It says in verse 2 through 4, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, again it says groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by now, the context of this section is the assurance of the resurrection, guys. Paul the Apostle was the one that says that without a resurrection, what's the point of even being here? He wasn't questioning the resurrection. He was saying that's how important the resurrection was. And there's no refuting. Even, you know, people who don't believe, uh, believe in the resurrection. The word naked here is a reference to being disembodied, meaning that many people believe that when you went to heaven, it was just your soul that went. But no, Paul says, no, man, we have the assurance that, that we're going to have a heavenly body when this earthly body is destroyed. A heavenly body. But if it's okay, I want to concentrate on the groaning, groaning aspect of it. What is good groaning? How can groaning be a positive thing? I believe that a good groaning or a good groaner is a heart that is sighing for heaven. Not in a complaining way, but like on our tiptoe kind of way. Like I, I can't wait, anticipating it kind of way. Because who wants to be around someone who complains? You guys ever been around someone that complains? And if you're the complainer, hopefully you get the hint. People aren't hanging out with you, Okay. But it's not easy being around someone that is always complaining. But boy, man, hang around someone who has a positive countenance and see how infectious it is. Notice Paul says, for in this we groan. It's repeated in verse 4. He touches on this issue in his letters to the Romans. He touches on that same issue. He says in verse 19 that... We're to have an earnest expectation. That's groaning. That we're to eagerly await. That's groaning. Notice in verse 22, the whole creation groans, labors with pangs. That's in Romans, by the way. We don't have time to turn there, but trust me, you can do that yourself. Verses eight, Chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, he talks about that. The whole creation groans. Labors with birth pangs. This is due to the sin that entered into the world. It, it's creation is saying, this isn't right. This isn't right. Throughout the, the history of the church, a particular word has been proclaimed. And, and, and uh, Jimmy and, and Tina kind of alluded to it in one of their songs. Um, people who were walking with the Lord back in the Jesus days would always say it. It's the word Maranatha. I think we have a picture there. Peter, don't make me look bad. Maranatha. You guys know what the definition of Maranatha is? Anybody? Oh, Lord Jesus, come. And so you had hippies like this dude. Anybody know who this dude is? That's Greg Laurie, very good. Saying Maranatha, Maranatha. But do you think that they were saying, oh, Maranatha, 
man, life is so messed up. Woe is me, Maranatha. How attractive would it have been? How contagious would it have been? No, they were saying, Maranatha. What does that mean? It means, Lord Jesus, come. You want to know why? Because when he comes, all this is going to be fixed. When he comes, he's finally going to bring justice to the world. He's going he's to draw us to himself. We're going to be in a place where he initially intended from the very get-go. Maranatha, oh Lord Jesus, come. As I was looking at Greg Laurie, I was thinking, imagine the typical conservative family during the Jesus freak days. I think we have a picture of that one too. Typical conservative family, and then there's a Jesus freak dude right there. But man, the Jesus freaks changed the world. Man, we, we uh, were watching a Case Smith uh, memorial service. Uh, was it yesterday or the day before yesterday? And if you know a little bit about Pastor Chuck's wife who just went home to be with the Lord, she was the one that was responsible. Pastor Chuck, you know, he would say, dirty hippies, they should go get jobs, put on shoes. That was the, the outlook of a lot of people back then. But Kay, she, she had a heart. She's like, no, they need the Lord. And, and through Kay, the Lord worked in, Paul, in Pastor Chuck's heart. And man, I mean, the rest is history. Maranatha is translated either as a prayer or a statement of fact. I, again, I don't think they said it in a negative groan. Oh, Maranatha. But many of us do as Christians, man. Many of us do. We're just we're sitting there complaining. And I understand. Sometimes it hurts being on this side of time. Our bodies are sin. Others sin. This world with the spirit of the Antichrist, the devil who is always hunting, we get tired. And we say it in a, in a way where it's just like, I'm done. Our pain, though real, will one day dim. Just like a mother who holds her child after giving birth. So let's be careful, Christians, to groan good and not bad. When we say Maranatha, that we tiptoe. Maranatha, because we're excited for that which is to come. They couldn't wait. And I believe that their heart was contagious. It was moving. It shook the ground beneath them. Sometimes as Christians, we groan badly. We have our complaint clubs. We have our pity parties. We have our political plans instead of our perpetual perspective. Don't get me wrong, vote, hint, hint, recall. <laughs> but keep the right perspective. Keep a heavenly perspective. Preach Christ and only him. Not the red or the blue. We need to be good groaners, guys. As Christians, we don't have a death wish. Right? We're not saying, ah, take me now, beam me up, Scotty. You know? But we do know that it's going to be a better life. That we'll be complete in him. It says, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. For we are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. In Romans 7, 24 and 25, uh, my brother just prayed that earlier, Paul, who's recognizing how wretched he was, says, who will deliver me from this wretchedness? And then he said, oh, wait a minute. Thank you, God. It's Jesus. Good groaning involves enthusiasm. It involves hope. It involves faith. 
Good groaning will not repel someone, but as you love them, it will draw them, not to yourself, but to Christ. Good groaning will focus not on the temporary, but that on the eternal. Groaning is Maranatha. It's a prayer for God's kingdom to come, a statement of fact, of faith that his kingdom is coming. We should live a Maranatha life. Again, thinking of Job, Job had his rough moments, didn't he? If you read Job, man, it makes you not want to read it again. Like Ryan Reese says, he lived a gnarly life. And though he was tempted, he, didn't, he never lost heart. I challenge you, read Job. He wrote in Job 19, 25, 26, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. He wrote in Job 23, 10, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. May we have God groanings, guys. Verses 5 through 8 says, Now he who has prepared for this, this very thing is God, who has also given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is who? It's God. He's also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, we've heard through our pastor that, that God uh, giving us the Holy Spirit is like a man who gives his bride uh, to be an engagement ring, right? A promise that he's going to come back for her. A promise that they will be together one day. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, who also has sealed us and has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit. There's no way that this makes sense. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm saying is true. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is saying, yes, don't lose heart. Keep a heavenly perspective. Keep going. Keep serving. Occupy until I come. A guarantee can also be looked at as a deposit. And today, sadly, if you leave a deposit um, and you change your mind, what usually happens? Usually you get the deposit back, huh? But in the New Testament days here of the church, if you left the deposit and you didn't come back, you know what would happen? You lost that deposit. And so God is not man that he should lie. That's what Numbers 23, 19 tells us. And, and I also cited John 14, that Jesus says, if it was not so, I wouldn't have told you when he says, I'm going to go and prepare a mansion for you. So we can trust what God says. But if he doesn't come back, and he will, in a way, we get to keep the Holy Spirit. And on the side note, same goes for you ladies. If a man proposes to you with a ring and doesn't follow through, it's okay to keep the ring. The Spirit being our guarantee means that, that he's going to help us. He's going to comfort us. He's going to use us in our sufferings as our tents are being destroyed to point to Jesus. So 
Someone said the other day that they watched Pastor Manny in a video. And um, I don't know if you guys have seen that video. Have you seen that video on Instagram and Facebook and, and so forth? Uh, who's with me? Vote to keep the beard, right? Looks good, huh? But this person was just tripping out on the fact that even though he was sick and he looked sick, you could see it in his face, you could hear it in his voice, he was still saying, hey, if you need help out there, if you're alone, um, if you're going through hard times, man, if you feel like losing heart, don't be alone. Reach out to us. And that has to be our heart. The, the cross can't just be something that was done for us it has to be a life that we live. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross daily. The gospel can't just be something that was done on our behalf. It has to be a life that we live. In verse 6, it says, so we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. It's almost like an admonition. Yes, we know that on this set of time, we're going to be away from the Lord. Hebrews 10, 35 through 38 encourages, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This journey through life might hurt. But though we're not with him, because it says that while we're here in the body, we're absent from the Lord. He's not far away. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that. He's given us the Holy Spirit as our counselor, as our helper. I would rather be with Jesus in heaven. Well, he's coming. The day is coming. Hold on. In the meantime, what do we do? We occupy. That's what verse 7 says. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul wrote, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. We occupy by faith. We work by faith. We serve by faith. We suffer by faith. Verse 8 says, We're confident, yes, well pleased, rather than be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In the meantime, we're to be good groaners. I was thinking about Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about dying and going to heaven. Yes, because his work wasn't yet done, God had other plans, right? He brought him back to life. And when he came back, he didn't come back groaning negatively. He came back to serve. I think he was groaning to be in heaven again because he had tasted and seen. He says, I saw things that I can't even begin to describe. That was his groaning. That was his good groaning. He wasn't complaining or moaning. He was serving. Chuck Smith, man, served to his last days. Even though he had a do not resuscitate order and he told his congregation that if he died on the pulpit and someone resuscitated him, he would punch them in the nose. And yet if you look at Pastor Chuck in his last sermon, I think of my mom, 
you know, when I see that, because he's got this long oxygen, you know, um, that's leading to the back, but he's preaching to his last day. Billy Graham, Reuben was mentioning yesterday, who was asked, when are you going to retire, Billy? And he pointed to Moses, to Caleb, and others in the Bible, and he says, show me when they retired. I'll retire when God retires me. So again, Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 24, he says, for to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. He was perplexed. I'm hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to be with Christ, that was so much better in his eyes. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh was more needful for you. So as we close, I want to leave you with three things. As our tent is being destroyed and every single tent here is being destroyed, I don't care how young you are. I don't care how indestructible you might feel. We're all dying. Let's remember that it's called a tent for a reason. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims just passing through. When you go camping, you don't take your whole house with you. You take a tent. You're done. You fold it up and you go home. Let's remember that whatever light affliction, and I know easier said than done, but I've gone through my own afflictions myself. Whatever light afflictions we go through, as long as we keep the right perspective, our eyes on Jesus, Compared to eternity, to the weight of glory, it'll pale in comparison. Keep your eyes on the prize and don't lose heart. And then thirdly, occupy. Occupy until he comes. Don't waste time having a pity party. Occupy until we go home to be with him. Be groaners, good groaners while we're here. Always looking but occupy until he comes. In closing, like Paul, who pointed to earth, earthly beat-up tent, and I already cited this verse in Galatians 6, 16, when he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7, who is being stoned, who is being killed in the most horrific way that you could imagine. But his focus isn't on that. His focus is on what? On seeing Jesus. He says that people were tripping out, that people can see a glow in him, that they can see the Holy Spirit in him. He, as he was dying, had his eyes fixed on Jesus, and the Bible says that Jesus stood up to receive him. That when our tent is destroyed, when, when it's, it's done with, that we can say, man, this is the mark of the Lord Jesus. I'm packing it in, Lord. I see you standing. I'm ready to go. I finished the race. I won the fight you've given me to win. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let me pray. Um, I'm going to pray for anyone here that might be here because the Lord drew them here even though they don't understand that. That might be here without having made a commitment to Jesus Christ. God is calling you. God loves you.
we can't absolutely do nothing apart from it. And those things that we can do, we're just going to get ourselves in trouble. And I also want to pray for us as a church that we have a heavenly perspective, that we're good growners, that we draw instead of repel, that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we preach Him and only Him. Amen.